Hello and welcome. You are listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. I'm Hannah Wakeford, and as always, I am joined by Hugh Osborne and Andrew Rushby. In this episode, we're going to be talking all about Venus. Those of you who are familiar with the show will know that we talked about Venus a lot in Exocast 42B when we interviewed the Venusian expert and fan, Dr. Stephen Kane. But we're going to expand on that discussion here, and in light of the recent NASA and ESA mission selections, that's three missions going to Venus, we're going to ask the question, why is Venus important for exoplanets? Now, we would be very remiss if we did not start that discussion by looking a little bit about the history of our exploration of and of Venus and take a little bit of a dive into those new missions. So again, we're asking ourselves, why is Venus important for exoplanets? Hugh, why don't you kick us off? Sure. So I delved a little bit into the history of Venusian exploration, um, and it's relatively recent. It's quite surprising, actually. Even at the start of the last century, people weren't sure what was under the clouds, right? Under under Venus's clouds, there was, you know, people thought maybe there's forests, maybe there's life down there. Um, there's some amazing '60s comic books which have yeah. the most ridiculous ideas of swamplands going on. <laughs> And it, it wasn't really till the 50s and 60s when the kind of space age started that we really figured out what was below the clouds. And that was partly due to the first kind of probes which we sent there, which were um, the Russian Venera probes. So the first six attempts between 1966 and 1970 all failed in various ways, although um, they they did manage to relay back some information on the atmosphere and um you know just how hellish venus is so we're talking about a planet that has 92 bars of carbon dioxide uh, atmosphere right and the surface temperature of i think 750 degrees celsius so although it's very um, recent that we knew what the temperature was that's another thing that we learned only by going there just how yeah. hot the surface of this planet is and also, can we focus on the fact that there were six missions in three years <laughs> to Venus? It really was space age. <laughs> back well, then. Yeah, there's quite a weird thing where they send two at once, always. I guess as oh, like a backup, you know. Well, okay, like, we know sense. one yeah. of them Have will be eaten by the sulfuric acid on the way down. So let's just hope that one of them makes it. Um, so it wasn't until Venera 7 when, um, when we had the first probe which survived landing. Uh, and it lasted about 23 minutes in, in the... Uh, on the surface before contact were lost but there was no actual um fo like camera on this mission <laughs> so we only got like surface uh temperature and 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 uh other sort of data we didn't get an, an image until um uh venera 9 and 10 in 1975 um and those and were so... both black and white images that we got from 9 <laughs> and 10 so it was yeah. you know very much pushing the boundaries each time you know what can we do next what can we do next and each of these ridiculous number of spacecraft is like okay well what's the next thing that we could do it wasn't all in one payload like we're used to it wasn't just like oh we need this instrument to do this this instrument to do this this is what you do. it was like well there's this one instrument on this spacecraft and there's this one <laughs> instrument on the next one and there's this one instrument on the next one but it was veneer yeah, so nine and ten where we got that first ever black and white pictures of the surface yeah, it's remarkable. There is there only are ten 
images of the surface of Venus in like from the entire you know space age from <laughs> that exist. It's it's kind of crazy how little we know about the surface, right? Um, so we talked a lot about what the Russians were doing, and they you know they sent ten probes before uh, the Americans got in on the act in 1978 when they sent Pioneer, which was uh, an orbiter and an atmospheric descent probe. Um, and actually, it was the first time the atmospheric descent probe was able to measure the ratio of deuterium to normal kind of hydrogen. And it was the first time that we found that there was this surplus of deuterium in the atmosphere, which shows that actually there was probably an ocean of water on the surface of Venus, which was evaporated um, completely by uh, by the runaway greenhouse effect that happened in, in, in the history. So... Um, so that wasn't until 1978 that, that that kind of question, open question, was kind of uh, resolved. And then during the 80s, again, we had more Russian probes, um, including the first balloons. So the Vega um, probe sent, sent, I think, three balloons into the Venetian atmosphere, which, because the winds are so strong in the um, the kind of high atmospheric circulation that goes on, um, the they were able to kind of... Uh, follow the balloons around the planet for like almost half of an of a rotation um and and figure out what the uh stratospheric kind of motions of the atmosphere were yeah um, so the the winds on venus are incredibly strong so the rotation rate of venus is very very slow incredibly slow yeah. but the atmosphere is not moving at that rate the atmosphere is moving <laughs> so much quicker uh, and those winds are really kind of driven around that around the planet so it's a, a very different atmosphere to the Earth's atmosphere. Very different indeed. It's got these massive circulations which go across almost the entire planet. So you've got polar cells of air rotating, and then you've just got this massive supersonic band, which is just yeah. a wind driving from the day side all the way around. And the rotation of the planet is so slow that that day side is, is in the sunlight for a long time. And that's something that, that is also kind of applied to hot Jupiters, right? They have a similar circula circulation, is that right? Indeed, yeah, yeah. So it's a really interesting to see that kind of scale on a giant planet and uh, what we would call a terrestrial world, which is rocky, a rocky planet. So the, the atmosphere, you know, responds differently from just, oh, this is rocky, therefore it must have an atmosphere like ours or like, or like Mars's. It's, that's not how it works. So we yeah. can see these supersonic jets, these really massive drivers and wind speeds in atmospheres that are still around rocky planets. And I think that's a really important thing to kind of point out, that rocky doesn't actually tell you enough uh, about those planets. Yeah. And another one of the kind of obvious differences between Earth and Venus is the fact that Venus is completely covered with cloud. Completely. Like there's this extremely thick sulfuric acid clouds which block all, well, not all light. There is some light that kind of scatters around and gets to the surface. But certainly there's no way to image the surface of Venus um, optically from orbit. So what you have to do is you have to use radar mapping. And so in the 90s, NASA returned with Magellan, which was the first time we were able to get kind of detailed surface maps using radar to penetrate those clouds. Um, and actually, the first time we kind of got these high definition maps was the first time we realized that the surface of Venus is young. There is not really any craters to be found, which normally older surfaces in the in the solar system we find, you know, covered in potholed with craters. Um, so, so this is kind of the main evidence that that Venus has this young volcanic surface, and potentially there's still volcanism going on. Although that's kind of an open question, as we haven't detected directly volcanism on the surface of Venus, but the surface maps we have tells us that it must be, you know, maybe even 
uh, in the last 100,000 years, which geologically is very young, there must be um, lava flows which were flowing. And then ESA got in on it as well, and they sent Venus Express, which spent eight years orbiting Venus, looking at its atmosphere. And that lasted until 2014. And most of the things that Venus Express was trying to understand is the impact of the solar wind on the ionosphere of Venus. Venus doesn't have its own magnetic field. So trying to understand why it might not have that and how that impacts the atmosphere was one of the big drivers for Venus Express, which orbited the planet and was able to study the dynamics of the atmosphere itself. And one of the things that it found is that lightning is much more common in Venus's atmosphere than it is here on Earth, which is really fascinating because that's telling you about the dynamics, the friction and the, the velocity of the storms in the atmosphere of Venus. And another thing that it was looking at is this bow shock created by the solar wind charged plasma from the sun is always streaming out. And this is impacting the upper atmosphere of Venus because it's not protected by a magnetic field, which redirects those particles for the Earth. So we have aurora, which is the direction of those particles coming down our magnetic field, whereas Venus is just being impacted by these all the time. So it's got this kind of glowing ionosphere where the impact of the solar wind is hitting that upper atmosphere, ionizing it, and looking at the direction of the tail that causes. So Venus actually has a tail of particles which kind of stream past like a comet as it's orbiting the sun. And that's because we're seeing that solar wind deflected by the upper atmosphere of Venus, which is creating its kind of own protection. So the fact that Venus's atmosphere is so thick actually does protect the surface from this harmful solar radiation. So while that's a good thing, that thick atmosphere will also kill you. So there's there's <laughs> a couple of pluses and minuses to not having a magnetic field there. You've got this really thick atmosphere, which also protects you from that radiation, but that thick atmosphere is really awful as well. But uh, another thing that it was looking at and another thing that it studied was, you know, the big global dynamics of the atmosphere. And it found that there's this huge double atmospheric vortex at the South Pole of the planet's atmosphere, which kind of churns up and changes with the seasons. So there's a lot of things that Venus Express was doing that was really interesting. And I was lucky enough to actually be able to play around with some of the data on the ionospheric uh, interaction between the solar wind when I was at university in uh, undergrad. So there's a lot of really cool stuff there that it was really interesting. Oh, cool. And of course, I mean, so if you'd, if you'd read the NASA press releases, you might have thought we haven't been to Venus in 30 years, but there right? is currently a probe on at venus in orbit around venus which is uh the japanese Ata akatsuki probe probe which is um yeah so also been studying the lightning and the um atmosphere using spectra and also taking some beautiful images i mean we've, we've, some of the highest resolution images we have of the whole disk of venus um from, from atatsuki uh. and one of the other things that akatsuki has been doing with those images is taking images in lots of different wavelengths so seeing how in the uv different materials uh, how deep can we see and looking in the infrared and in the optical and bringing that together and how can we piece together the structure of these upper clouds in the atmosphere, these sulfuric acid clouds? What is their structure like and how do they vary? On, on what timescales do they vary? And they've those images that you see, some of them are beautiful composite images, absolutely beautiful. And yeah. one of the things that we don't understand is there's unknown absorbers in the atmosphere and we're trying to understand them so looking over all of these different wavelengths that they have on board is really important for that 
Yeah, and I mean, we have a relatively good understanding of how the atmosphere of Venus is currently, except some of these missing absorbers. But mm-hmm. I mean, what the really key question is, is what it, what was it like in the past? So Andrew, can you go through a little bit of that? I can. That was a nice, uh, a nice little segue from, you know, piecing together the current structure of the atmosphere to how do we piece together the history of, of the atmosphere. Um, and maybe from that, telling us a little bit about the history of the interior of the planet as well. So we think... You know, currently that the the present climate of Venus is controlled by a very efficient carbon dioxide water greenhouse effect uh, and by uh, this incredible cloud cover that it has, which results in these, you know, super, super high temperatures. Um, But, you know, that would have proceeded due to the loss of some water water in the atmosphere, water on the surface potentially, um, and maybe some ongoing low-level volcanism as we as we touched on. But what's the form of that volcanism? What does it look like? Is it going to be the same kind of volcanism that we have here on the Earth, or is there some other different form that Venus has taken? Um, and we're at very early stages of, of trying to answer that question. Um, so what we do know, or what we hypothesize about the history of Venus, is that probably both Earth and Venus had a pretty similar uh, early history. They both formed in a protoplanetary disk and accreted most of their mass while they were still in that disk. And there was some time whilst uh, they were accreting and there was still gas in that in that nebula um, that allowed the kind of interior of the planet to interact with that that early with that with that nebula gas, um, uh, as there would have been probably a a liquid uh, surface magma ocean that would allowed some gas exchange between you know, that primordial gas and you know the early surface of the planet. So. Once that had eventually evaporated, as the sun had um, started to uh, you know, enter the main sequence, both planets were surrounded by you know a thin hydrogen envelope and probably going along the same evolutionary track so far. That envelope would then have been driven off by uh, X uh, rays, extreme UV uh, impactors during that early active phase of the sun, um, and probably also by the late heavy bombardment phase of the uh, inner solar system, which would have delivered probably well, some mass there too. Well, that's one interesting point as well. I believe that. Um, well, Venus's rotation is one thing that's very different to Earth. So that that's early stage of formation is is potentially where um, the rotation comes from. If there was a late impact of a large uh, kind of almost like the the, the moon forming impact that we think mm-hmm. happens to Earth, um, that might be the reason that um, Venus kind of is not really spinning in in the same rate you would expect for a planet at, at that distance from the sun. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a, like the difference between what is thought for the formation of the moon is almost a direct impact with the Earth, whereas what you'd have to do for to slow your rotation have a glancing impact of that kind, and that that would then be able to slow down your planet. So there's a lot of dynamics that happened in that early solar system formation that because of the, I guess, the mass ratio of material within the inner solar system meant that there was a lot more kind of visible changes that we can see in, in the planets and the differences that we can see between the planets. And it would be fantastic to be able to get some evidence uh, to Wouldn't it just? <laughs> support that theory, right? <laughs> um, and we could look at the moon and see that, you know, that compositionally is kind of similar to the Earth, that there's you know, some bits missing, which allows us to piece together the story. But that's not the case for Venus, unfortunately. So maybe we can figure out something by learning a little bit about its interior and its differentiation, why it doesn't have a magnetic field, for example, as Hannah already touched on, might give us an answer to that rotation question. Um, but during this phase, there was probably also some other useful things that were delivered, probably some water, maybe some some CO2, maybe some biologically useful materials that were delivered by those impactors from beyond the ice line. Um, and then after that happened, probably some outgassing of volatiles um, remaining in the Venusian atmosphere. Water, although it's a bit controversial, water might have been stable at one point, but it probably wasn't. But maybe it was in small parts. I, I, let's let's just leave it open as to potentially water could have been, been stable on the surface at some point. Why wouldn't it have been stable? 
what are the kind of drivers for it not being something that could have happened? I, I, I guess it's likely until we can get images of, of the surface. And again, the, the, earth, the surface being so young means that we can't really see any of the hydrological features we might see, for example, on Mars. Um, I guess there's no real reason. If the temperatures were within the condensable limit, why wouldn't there be? Uh, it's, it's, a good, yeah. it's a good point. Um, but whatever so, water was likely there um, would have started to be photo disassociated around this time, allowing that hydrogen to escape, that lighter hydrogen, leaving behind that deuterium, as, as, as Hugh mentioned, to start seeing that initial enrichment. Um, so I, I guess it must be an open question as to whether there was a window before the runaway greenhouse when you would have maybe had this, an ocean, you know, a water ocean on the surface, mm-hmm. um, or whether that, you know, happened very quickly, the, the the start of the runaway greenhouse. So, I mean, is that is that still undecided, I guess? Yeah, there's, uh, we, we can talk about it a little bit later, uh, actually, but there yeah. is some some evidence from, from GIS, from the, the NASA GIS folks that did some pretty cool simulations on this, showing, you know, maybe a shallow, uh, shallow ocean, much more exposed land, might have been stable for up to maybe three billion years ago. So there's, this is still being figured out, I think, and the, yeah. as I mentioned, the fact that this is such a young surface is both kind of exciting, but also, you know, uh, worrying in the fact that we might not be able to get any of that see any of that very early evidence for you know resurfacing that might have been done by a, a liquid water ocean if it's been resurfaced resurfaced since then perhaps in the last hundred thousand years as you touched on mm. um, so perhaps but- a question that is a little out of the field but uh where does all the co2 come from the co2 that we have in our atmosphere <laughs> we've been chucking out you know that massive increase in co2 that runaway greenhouse that we could be coming to a tipping point of that's happened on venus but there's there's no industrialization there where did that co2 come from there's there's tons of it in fact it, correct me if i'm wrong but there's the same amount of nitrogen in venus's atmosphere as there is in the earth but there's just that much more co2 well i believe there's there's that much co2 also in terms of reservoir on earth like it's so not, it is it from this outgassing it is very much from volcanic outgassing yeah, a lot of a lot of Earth's carbon is bound up uh, in mm-hmm. in the crust in you know, life. Honestly, uh, it's being subducted, it's being outgassed constantly. Whereas on Venus, maybe without that uh, volcanism, that outgassing, that exchange—not just the outgassing from the interior, but actually putting it back in somehow as well, subducting material—that um, most of that CO two ends up in in the atmosphere, and it would probably have been delivered either within you know the initial formation of the planet or from impactors later on, as we think probably a quite a lot of uh, inorganic carbon was delivered to the earth during that phase as well so again well, most likely <laughs> but uh well, it's yeah. interesting that you know every year we outgassing on earth every year through volcanism releases about 0.61 billion tons of co2 but you know that's that's a fraction of the crap that we're putting out there by the way that is that is about a tenth of what we're actually putting out into the atmosphere every year. So the outgassing on Earth of CO2 is is very, very small. Would it be... But it's drawn back down again. It's this, it's this carbon silicate cycle, isn't it? Is it because you've got this global kind of potential global volcanic surface that would have caused it to not be drawn down, to not have this recycling process that you were talking about? 
Yeah, actually, and we might be touching on it um, with the news as well. There's a, there's a recent paper in the news about this, that uh, the the core mass fraction of the planet and how that controls the thickness of the plates and how those then uh, affect the movement of those plates or the lack of movement in some cases, which can result in a stagnant lid, which prevents a lot of that stuff from getting back into the interior and just result in pretty much, um, you know, a secular outgassing. Um, but again, we're not, we're not sure that that's the case on Venus. We think that's the case. And the lack of the magnetic field, as, as, you, as you touched on, and it gives some support to the stagnant lid idea um, and that might have prevented those kind of mobile plates from moving uh, from forming which would then have prevented a lot of that exchange it's so important the the, the kind of atmosphere geosphere interior exchange that we kind of take for granted on earth that you know those things are pretty connected um, over the hundred thousand year timescales and, and recycling stuff constantly maybe that happened on venus in the past but it doesn't seem to be happening now at least not very effectively um, or it's broken down because we have a, a pretty extreme uh, greenhouse situation there at the moment yeah so- i guess there's a question as to whether you could have had tectonics while there was an ocean and then afterwards, the lack of, you know, the evaporation of the ocean and the buildup of the CO2 and the, the increasing temperatures of the upper crust kind of stopped that process, right? Yeah, that's a great point, Hugh. The connection of, of the um, of the oceanic side of this, the hydration of those plates would have allowed them to be more more elastic, more plastic, able to move a little bit easier. Um, so the la- the loss of the water might have also inhibited the, the continuation of any plate tectonics if there was any. Um, so again, a connection between the ocean and the interior and the atmosphere. Um, it's almost like it's a one one system science, right? <laughs> <laughs> you would say that. Uh, I would say that, wouldn't I? <laughs> so the question we have posed here is why is Venus so important for exoplanets? And we've gone through a little bit about, you know, Venus, about the past missions. What are the new missions going to do? We've, we've posed a lot of questions, open questions we have about Venus. What are these new three different missions, two from NASA and one from ESA, going to do to help us understand Venus more? And why is that important for us studying exoplanets? Well, which, which one should we start with? <laughs> should we start with Da Vinci Plus? Go for I think it. So. Okay, so so Da Vinci Plus stands for the Deep Atmospheric Venus Investigation of Noble Gases, Chemistry, and Imaging Plus. Other things. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. What a great, uh, classic, classic um, kind of astronomer's acronym right there. Um, so it's it's basically going to be an orbiter and a descent probe, which um, which is should be we should mention is is a descent probe and not a lander. So they don't expect it to survive at least particularly long on the surface. It might get there. Um, but it might it's unlikely to survive right um so the well hannah do you want to do you want to tell us what the uh, atmospheric probe will be doing yeah so the the reason why we want to send this at this this probe through the atmosphere and we don't really mind if it survives on the surface or not that would be kind of all right i guess but it's designed to measure the atmosphere itself and to not not only kind of just ask the question of what's the atmosphere made of, but where is everything? Where's all the stuff? And what is changing as you go down through the atmosphere? So we've got a huge amount of gas in Venus's atmosphere. It's 92 times the pressure that we have here on Earth. It's a huge amount packed into to a relatively small space. It's not the extent of Venus's atmosphere is not much greater than the Earth's. So it's just more dense. So what what does that do to the temperature profile of the atmosphere? How does the temperature change as you go down through the atmosphere? We know for the Earth, we have multiple inversion layers. 
and multiple points where specific gases change the structure, the temperature structure of our planetary atmosphere. The ozone layer, for example, in the Earth's stratosphere is the thing that causes it to be hotter as you go up rather than cooler. So what is the structure of temperature as you go down through Venus's atmosphere is a really important question we have, which will help us understand the dynamics of the atmosphere, the stratification. Is there different layers of different gases in this dense atmosphere, like a like a cocktail of different things? Or is it kind of uniform and mixed? Is this, is the Are the winds really very strong at different points in the atmosphere? And how does that affect the transport of heat? So the probe is going to help us understand a lot more about that. And one of the things that's really important about that, taking it to our big question, why is this important for exoplanets, is that when we're measuring the atmospheres of exoplanets with the transmission spectroscopy or emission from their eclipses, we are measuring the very upper parts of that planetary atmosphere. We're measuring very, very high up in the atmospheres. And we need to understand for these smaller rocky planets how the lower atmosphere is tied to the upper atmosphere. How does the dynamics at the surface affect what we're measuring? And can we, from the measurements we're making of the upper atmosphere, make assumptions about the surface of that planet? And having this really detailed look through a very, very different kind of atmosphere to our own will help us tie those things together, the lower atmosphere and the upper atmosphere. Compare that to something like the Earth, where we've got a very, very detailed profile of our planetary atmosphere. So that comparison is going to be incredibly vital for future exoplanet studies of these small rocky worlds and their upper atmospheres, and whether or not we can make any assumptions about what that surface might be like. I guess there's a bit of a risk here, right? If we have one shot at this, one descent probe, and we have to collect a, a pretty decent profile and hope that's representative of the whole atmosphere on the way down, is there is there an inherent risk involved there? Beyond there's an it, like, inherent not risk a hardware with... failure, of course. Um, but oh, are we sure. gonna miss, could we miss something, for example? There, there's a big risk with all of these components. And I think that the description that Hugh gave us of the Russian Venera probes failing six times before they get there is a great example of that risk. But one of the things that that question you were asking, we've already seen this happen. There was a descent probe from Galileo spacecraft that was sent to Jupiter. And the results that it got from that suggested that it actually went through a part of the atmosphere that is not like most of the atmosphere. They call it dry. Um, and that profile that it gave us wasn't particularly representative of the whole planet. So there is a big question there. One of the, the things about Venus's atmosphere, though, because it's got this massive supersonic jet all around it, it's, it's almost a global jet. It is more uniform than something like Jupiter, where you've got so many band structures. So there is potential for it to be a far more uh, useful calibration for the whole planet compared to something like Jupiter. So the N in, in Da Vinci stands for noble gases, and I think that's another important thing that the, the descent probe is going to be measuring because these these gases these are like trace gases in the atmosphere, but but we think they should have stuck around since the formation of the planet, and actually the the kind of um, the amount of noble gases that are there and potentially the um, the kind of uh, isotope ratios can tell us something about how um, 
volatiles were delivered to Venus and whether that's different from Earth or comets or the other the other planets in the solar system. So that's that's another key point to uh, about the descent probe. Yeah, so the, the ratios of these different noble gases that don't react to anything else is going to be really interesting because we know for one of the noble gases, argon, here on the Earth, the majority of our argon doesn't originate from the solar nebula. It doesn't. It's not what was originally in our atmosphere when we formed. It actually comes from the decay of potassium, which is from our Earth's crust. So seeing the ratio of different isotopes of these noble gases can help inform us about where that material came from because they haven't reacted with anything else. Once they're formed, they're very stable. So they don't decay into anything else. So that will allow us to see whether or not the argon in Venus's atmosphere is like the Earth. It came from potassium decay on the crust, or if it is just the argon that came from the solar nebula and there wasn't any of that interaction. So it will be really interesting what these noble gases and the ratios will tell us. And I guess unlike the the Russian uh, landers, we're going to have a camera uh, on board yeah. that's going to take some pictures <laughs> on the way down. High, high resolution one. So we might have more than 10 um, by the end of the yeah, mission, hopefully we'll hope. get you know at least ten more. You know that'd be nice. <laughs> yeah. It's whether or not that that sulfuric acid haze causes that orange glow to just be. I'd be interested in the saturation limits actually of that the backscattering of the clouds themselves as you're going through them and how how that would work. Because think of a plane flying through a cloud here in Earth's atmosphere. Everything becomes very shy, like bright and white. So what would that be like in Venus's atmosphere? So I'm really interested in in seeing those images as we come down, because that alone will tell us a lot about the structure of those particles and the distribution that, that they have. So, oh, there's so much to learn. <laughs> um, but what about, so the, I, what about the other one? What about Veritas? Unless there was yeah, so Veritas stands for Venus Emissivity Radio Science INSAR Topography and Spectroscopy. That sounds um, like catchy. a map to me. That topography yeah. Yeah. is like full on. So this is GIS. So if Da Vinci Plus is basically the atmospheric chemist's kind of play tool, then this is the geophysicist one because this is this is packed with sensors which are trying to measure, you know, substructure, topography, map the surface, do like gravitational stuff. So, um, so yeah, so it so it should produce m- the best topographic maps we have of the surface. So much better than we had from Magellan thirty years ago, um, down to a few meters in resolution. So we can start. Um, potentially resolving features which which tell us a bit more about how young the surface might be. Um, it should also produce gravity maps. So um, this could actually probe the internal structure. And so, for example, the, the density of, of the upper mantle. Um, and that should tell us a little bit about how the interior and how the kind of... Um, geological processes on inside Venus are, are, are going on. Yeah, I'm really interested in the map of Venus and getting that really nice resolution because there's some features on Venus called uh, pancake pancake volcanoes. They look like uh, big disks with like solid cliffs down the side of them. Um, and the question is, are these active magma pools? Are they, are they exposed magma or is it solid? And these big pancakes, you see them all over from, from previous maps and the idea of trying to understand, you know, which parts of the surface are active. Are we seeing, will we see something like that Iceland volcano that we've got going on at the moment, you know, that nice churning lava rivers and things. And and that's something that I think is really important for us to understand how new the surface is. Yeah. 
So one thing that, because it's got this SAR, so this synthetic aperture radar stuff, um, like uh, it can actually measure the difference in um, like the change in elevation of the surface just by from one pass to the next with a resolution of something better than a centimeter. So it should be able to tell us if there's, you know, magma underneath the surface that's pushing or pulling the, the surface around, even even on ridiculously small kind of uh, length scales. So that's going to be really interesting. And crucially, these, these two missions are kind of contingent, right? They're happening round about the same time. Um, within a yeah, two so they window. should both be launched around 2028, um, maybe arriving t- uh, 20, 2029 or 2030. Like Just like the Russian probes. What, send, why not send two at the same why time? Why not send you know? two at the same time? Just make sure they don't <laughs> crash into each other. It's fine. And then follow up with another four in the next few years. Um, yeah. yeah why of not? increasing complexity. Well, we're well, maybe not I mean, four. But there so is we'll, another one. There'll definitely least. be one. Uh, so we should talk about Envision as well, right? Yeah, just a few days before uh, we're recording this, uh, another another mission was announced. So uh, I think I've read this somewhere. I want to say Elizabeth Tasker's article, but it's something like a bus. You know, none happen. None come along for ages and then three at once. Uh, and we have yep. another, yeah. another mission uh, called Envision, which should be launching somewhat later, 2032. Um, right? Yeah, it's, so it's classic European yeah. timescale. <laughs> more realistic i think is really so, what you should be saying as yeah. we've seen with many things uh the the time scales are optimistic yeah i mean we all remember exomars <laughs> although test launched on time didn't it yeah and even msl right the Mars, or the perseverance so, was okay. remarkably yeah. quick but um yeah nasa has a better track record i think of getting things off on time um, so we'll, we'll have to see. So uh, it's it's kind of interesting because I, I believe Envision was proposed before Veritas and DaVinci Plus, um, but it was announced after and it will arrive after. And actually, in some ways, it, it, it has similar kind of um, instrument packages. So like Veritas, it will be carrying SAR, so Synthetic Aperture Radar, to, to map the surface and the changes in, in topography on the surface. Uh, it's, one thing it's, it's bringing that... Um, the others aren't it's bringing this radar sounding um antenna which is basically going to be able to detect subsurface structures potentially so um if there's any kind of high density or low density regions just under the surface then this radar sounding should be able to to find it like lava um, tubes or caves or well something. yeah yeah potentially and then it uh, of course it's also going to do some atmospheric chemistry as well so bringing spectrographs to measure um, precisely the kind of spectral, um, you know, molecular structure of the atmosphere. So, um, yeah, it's certainly interesting that we get three Venus missions in all within one decade. Uh, is going to be really, we're going to learn so much, and it's really timely because we've heard some things about Venus discovery about their atmospheres for a few months now last year we got the phosphine detection in the atmosphere and then the the back and forth uh, on that now these all three of these missions were very much designed years and years uh, so this didn't play into any of their instrument design in fact none of them contain instruments that can specifically detect the presence of phosphine in our atmosphere but do you think that that is an important aspect of why we need to go to venus now Absolutely, in one word, uh, I think that <laughs> phosphine discovery is you know is timely because it's uh, kind of galvanised interest again 
uh, for Venus. Now, I'm not saying that had any anything to do with the decisions that were being made for funding. Uh, here, for example, I think people in the know have wanted a Venus uh, mission for a while. But um, for maybe those who aren't following Venus uh, science that closely, you know, maybe it, it's a little bit left behind. And this discovery was was a, a good way to remind us that there's a lot about Venus, certainly, I think, that we've already covered that we don't know, but particularly and potentially also about potential Venusian life, uh, which is always an exciting thing to, to throw into a, a mission remit. So as Hannah mentioned, you know, we're not going to be able to detect phosphine directly, um, but there might be from the instruments that are already on board, uh, from learning about the atmospheric profile, from learning about the gases that are there, um, we can start to figure out maybe if it's an abiotic source, as as some folks have claimed, or if there is potentially a uh, you know a biotic um, source for that for that gas, which would answer that question or go a long way to answering it anyway. And one of the big, um, I think. Uh, I'm not sure where the debate actually is. Uh, following our last <laughs> episode, it, it was quite a lot of research to figure out, you know, the back and forth. And I'm not sure where where things currently are. Um, but the uh, one of the one of the big points was this uh, kind of spatial heterogeneity of the gas. And if the the answer the 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 outcome of, of that is that it might be from a single point source. And if it's well mixed in the atmosphere, so we've mentioned that the atmosphere is you know, rotating very rapidly, so things should be pretty well mixed. But there, if there is any spatial heterogeneity, maybe also you know, as, as you go through the atmosphere and the profile, uh, then that can also give us some more info. So whilst we might not be getting potentially that direct detection, we could get an indirect detection of things that can help us rule out certain sources for that gas anyway. Yeah, but I think... You know the the phosphine detection um, adds to this like long-standing back and forth over whether Venus will have been or is currently habitable, right? So, so there's parts of the atmosphere I believe which which have a very nice kind of well, there's almost a habitable zone in the atmosphere, right? There's a one-bar kind of nice temperature region uh, that if you were floating around in, you might be able to survive. That was a very popular yeah, it, idea in the in the latter half of the 20th century. I think Carl Sagan was was in on that. Uh, there were talk of floating cities, as Hannah mentioned, because basically the background gas is nitrogen and CO2 instead of nitrogen and, and oxygen. You could have a nitrogen oxygen atmosphere in your dome, whatever it might be, in your vehicle, and that would actually be a lifting gas, like helium is on Earth. You wouldn't need a, to bring helium along with you. You could just bring oxygen or make oxygen from hydrogen uh, that's already there. So there were some really cool sci-fi ideas for you know getting you know settling and 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 human exploration of, of the surface potentially crewed missions in the atmosphere but also as as you mentioned a, a, a habitable zone in the atmosphere where potential life could exist there's enough solar incident light there maybe if these organisms are able to to resist that sulfuric acid and you know there's this good temperature temperature band with enough volatiles going on um hey maybe there's some free-floating photosynthetic single-celled organisms up there as well who knows well, i think you touched on something that kind of throws that spanner in the works there of that sulfuric acid and protection from that sulfuric acid because we know that it forms a kind of a, a haze throughout the atmosphere very small particles distributed over a wide wide range of kilometers in the atmosphere and there are points you know there's definitely a point in the atmosphere where you reach one bar where it's the same pressure we have here on earth there's a point in the atmosphere where you reach you know a nice maybe 300 kelvin you know good temperatures You know, you're surrounded by sulfuric acid, yeah. droplets of sulfuric acid. Like, and as this you said, isn't... it would probably be so dazzlingly scattered in all directions. Um, you know, any sunlight that does make it through, it would be very difficult to tell which way's up, which way's down, where you are. <laughs> no, it just... And also, so one of the things that the Vega probes found was there was a huge, 
like vertical turbulence that happens in in Venus's atmosphere. So if you're if you're in the habitable zone, there's no there's no you know nothing saying that you won't be dropped three kilometers into the uninhabitable zone, right? <laughs> So I guess the conclusion that we're coming to is it seems like a bit of a push to suggest that there is, you know, th- there is without a doubt a temperature and, and pressure boundary in that atmosphere mm-hmm. that we could consider to be habitable. Whether there's life or not in there seems a bit of a, of a push and crude exploration, we're, we're a long way from that. I think we can... But we are an exoplanet podcast. Exactly, we want we to know about exoplanets. Why is Venus and this exploration of this essentially twin planet same radius same mass we've measured however many of them hugh how many how many of these kind of size worlds have we measured why do we need to go to venus we've touched on it i think it's it's plate tectonics uh for me are the big one right to, to figure out this oh, really? question interesting yeah I mean, I know you're an atmosphere person, and technically I should be as well. But I think that this is the the thing that's going to give us a big, um, a big leap in our understanding of this planet and our planet as well. Hopefully, as you said, they are twin planets. How are they so different? Um, and in terms the- of the necessity of plate tectonics for life, or in terms of the evolution of a rocky planet. Maybe a little bit of both. I mean, we've we've discovered planets that undoubtedly have atmospheres. We don't know that much about them and can't characterise them that well. But we have not found another planet that has anything that like plate tectonics yet, apart from the Earth, of course. So even just having one more case where we can, you know, understand a dynamic terrestrial planet um, would advance our understanding of the Earth, probably, as well as those exoplanets that we have yet to discover. Uh, and that's not to say that the atmosphere isn't as important, because we've t- touched on how interconnected it all is. Uh, and I guess maybe this is just my personal take on it but i think the discovery of of some plate tectonics or some other mode of tectonics is going to be uh, you know one of the biggest outcomes from from these missions hopefully yeah and it's, it's nice that, that that is also a standalone thing you know venus in itself being a really powerful tool for us to understand our planet and and our solar system so you know it it really is a fascinating world to to examine i think speaking from for myself it's really if we find a planet that has the same radius, the same mass as the Earth, give or take a smidgen. Is it a Venus or is it an Earth? Is it completely different? We genuinely don't know. And there's very little we can do right now that can give us any kind of definitive answer on that. Well, when we had yeah, Stephen, I did, I... um, Stephen Kane on, he, he wanted us to call most of the planets that we call exo-Earths or super-Earths or whatever, super-Venuses and exo-Venuses exactly. instead, which is a very you know, valid point. And, and I think the question comes to, okay, well, what questions do we need to answer about Venus? What things do we need to know about Venus to make that distinction? Is there a, a breaking point that we can use to kind of shove them in these boxes that we want to shove them into? Because, I mean, that, that's ultimately... We're trying to understand if if this rocky planet that we're looking at, how close to which box is it in? Yeah, I I think that probably did actually help the chances of these Venus missions. The fact that now we're at a, pl- a place in terms of exoplanet discovery where we are going to start finding planets at you know between 0.5 and one AU, Earth sized around sun like stars, and suddenly, well, yeah, we we don't know enough about our twin to really say what you know what we've found and so i think that's probably one reason that venus won out over like a a distant giant planet moon missions which were also on the table for nasa Mm. um because there's also this link with exoplanets and 
and you know this unanswered question as to whether whether the thing we find as you say is is a <laughs> is a venus or an earth that's interesting Hugh. so it's kind of going the other way now so much of our understanding of exoplanets have come from the exploration of the solar system and now we're, we're trying to bring it back in the other direction we need to know more about the planets in our solar system to, to help us to, to better understand exoplanets so i mean it's one of the situations a lot of the exoplanets we're discovering are nothing like anything in our solar system. Absolutely nothing. And we're coming to the point where we're seeing these kinds of worlds and we're asking questions of things that we can answer with our solar system. We can start to answer, okay, well, we've got these two very similar sized worlds. They're incredibly different. How different are they? What are the very small nuances? And I think the history of Venus is something that's really important there. The timeline of the two planets is clearly diverges at some point. There's a clear point at which something happens. How early does that happen? And does that tell us a little bit about the evolution of a planet and what's what we should be looking for in terms of timescales as well? Because we're getting a snapshot of these exoplanets right now. And I think the hardest thing to do is to, to date them in terms of ages based on their stars. How old are these planets and what evolutionary stage do we think they might even be at if we do manage to make measurements? If we measure an atmosphere which has got lots of CO2, is it a Venus and it's already kind of runaway greenhouse dead? Or is it like an old, what is it, Hadean or Archean Earth? You know, which which of those two? Is it early? Is it going to become really nice and habitable because that magic pocket of cyanobacteria has appeared somewhere, somehow? Or, or is it is it going to stay in this hellish state forever? And, and those are really huge questions. Important for us here on Earth as well, uh, as a potential snapshot of our future. <laughs> um, if it happened to Venus, it can happen to us. Uh, by all accounts, it's, it's pretty much identical to the Earth. The only thing that's different is it's a little closer. So I imagine that has something to do with it, increased uh, mm-hmm. incident radiation. Yeah, but that, maybe in four billion down. years, there'll be people on, or, you know, like beings on Mars being like, we need to go and discover what these two Venus, Venusian planets in our, in our solar system are like, you know. Yeah, we, we only, will become that in the future. We only have <laughs> 10 images from the surface of Earth. It's an absolute hellhole. Yeah. So we really should go and, <laughs> go and see what's going on there before our probes melt. Um, yeah, absolutely. So where that, where that tip point was um, where the atmosphere ran away uh, and resulted in this greenhouse is going to be is going to be super important I, I think um, and the question of has has Venus always been that way could be something that might be answered by a combination of the interior um, exploration and the atmospheric exploration understanding where those gases came from how they're interacted with uh, other things in the planet uh, in the atmosphere and in the interior um, to, to get to answer some of those questions because it is open as, as I mentioned earlier there is some recent recent work simulation or, or model work that suggests that there could have been, uh, if 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 a, a you know a, a water ocean was stable on Venus, it could have been there for up to three billion years ago, um, and we can get some evidence for that from surface probes, from the interior stuff, from the atmosphere as well, and that can help us to at least come down on one side or the other of this argument um, as to as to when that happened. Um, so I think that we've answered the question of why is Venus important for exoplanets? Because there's so much that we don't know and there's so much that we need to know to understand the planets that we're looking at, the solar system formation, the difference between these rocky worlds and, and the Earth itself and trying to understand mm-hmm. the, the important systems of it. So I also think that we've kind of covered quite nicely the fact that we've got these three missions and that we need all three of these missions because they all bring something else to the table. And it's about time that we go to Venus 
and we fill up on all the data we can, including all of the data that we're still getting from Akasuki. So uh, I'm very excited for all of the Venus scientists out there, the future Venus scientists in the making right now. These are going to be launching, you know, end of the decade. Yeah. We've got people who are going into university right now who are seeing these in the news that are hopefully excited to play with Venus data sometime in the future. So uh, there's a lot that's going to come from it for many, many years. So yeah, get, get those questions going. Mm-hmm. And I mean, let's let's uh, there's stuff happening on the on Earth as well, right? We can still image Venus. We can still do some stuff here. That's how some of those phosphine detections were were followed up. But yes, it, there's nothing like going to the planet is there to to answer some of those questions in a little bit more detail. Um, so yeah, if you're listening to this and you're just about to going to university, you could be the one answering some of these questions, or at least helping to answer some of these questions uh, 10, 10, 12 years from now. That's really exciting. Exocast. Okay, well, with that tentative and, and tantalizing look at the potential exploration of, of Venus, I think we should probably wrap, out, wrap up our discussion for now. Um, please don't forget to look out for our other episode this month, uh, in which we'll look through a few th- uh, of the last month's most exciting new exoplanetary news. Um, of course, you can also get in touch with us to let us know your sh- thoughts on the show at exo underscore cast on Twitter. And of course, you can find all of our episodes on our website, exocast.org, on iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcasting apps, and probably a few bad ones as well. Uh, a massive appreciative shout out though to our buy me a coffee donations from chad and glenn this month who loaded us up with some coffee money much appreciated um so thanks a lot guys uh if you want to support the show you can also donate uh, at buymeacoffee.com forward slash exocast and donations over 15 dollars will get you a shout out on the next show you can now also buy Exocast merchandise as I'm sitting here in my Exocast t-shirt, drinking from my Exocast mug, uh, looking at Hugh's Exocast tote bag in the back there and imagining that Hannah has her Exocast jumper on. So if you want to look <laughs> as cool as we do, um, you can go over to exocast.threadless.com and check out some of our designs. But for now, thanks for listening and we'll see you on the next show. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Exocast. I have exoplanets. This podcast was brought to you by the Exocast team. Hannah Wakeford is a lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol in the UK. Hugh Osborne is the Tess Kops Fellow at MIT and the University of Bern. And Andrew Rushby is a postdoctoral fellow in astronomy at the University of California, Irvine. Music was courtesy of Poddington Bear. You can find more information on exocast.org.